Welcome back, friends. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We're continuing to look at chapter 20. Uh, Let me, again, just by way of reminder and by way of setting the context, say a few words before we get back into chapter 20, and we'll go through it verse by verse. We looked at it in the last session um, in a cursory way, and I did a lot of introductory remarks. Um, So I hope that you have listened to the last session. These two sessions very much go together. Uh, Together, I think we will get a pretty good understanding of the book of Revelation in chapter 20. But let me just do a few words of reminder in case perhaps you're joining us for the first time. But again, you can go back to our website and, and all, of, all of these podcasts on Revelation or, or archives. I hope that you particularly will listen uh, to what I've said about chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. Um, that's what we've been doing in the last three weeks or so. And even if you haven't been with me throughout all of Revelation, uh, in many ways chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 uh, can stand alone as the climax for the book of Revelation. Uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1, we have introductory material. Chapters 2 and 3, we have uh, Jesus' letters to the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, we have some visions of heaven. And then chapter 6 through 19, really, I think you're seeing God's judgment in history. And then when you get to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, I think you're seeing the climax of history. And that's why in chapter 19 you see the final fall of the kingdom of the beast, and you see the return of Christ in chapter 19. And I do see chapters 19, 20 uh, as a unit. So in chapter 20, uh, after the return of Christ, you see uh, what I've outlined for you as uh, uh, the binding of... um, the imprisonment of uh, Satan. You see the thousand-year reign of Christ after the, the resurrection of the saints occur, that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that messianic, king, messianic kingdom on earth. Then after the thousand years, uh, you see the devil released. Another, this one, the final battle between good and evil, God and the devil. And of course, there's no real battle. Uh, there's a, the final defeat of Satan. And then uh, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, that place that really is prepared for Satan, not really for any of us, but for Satan. But those who um, bind themselves to Satan will also uh, be part of that because after Satan is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, uh, the second resurrection is implied, as mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier in Revelation 20. And after this, at the second resurrection, all, all people throughout human history are raised, and then you see the final judgment, and then chapters 21 and 22, you see uh, the picture of the final kingdom, the new heaven and new earth that come down from heaven to earth, and then you make your way to just the uh, epilogue, the concluding verses of the book of Revelation. So uh, that, that's some introductory material, review material. I think this chronology, which I talked last week being a premillennial chronology, um, is uh, in accord 
with uh, the chronology we see from Ezekiel 37 through 48. I think it's in accord with what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 23 through 28 in, in the thought of Paul. I think it, it um, makes use of much of the prophecies, much of uh, the kingdom language uh, in Jewish eschatology, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, and other places in the Hebrew Bible. I think um, this... Um, outline of human history is faithful to the earliest Christian community, people like Papias and Justin, Martyr, Tertullian, Irenaeus, um, and I refer to it as a premillennial uh, understanding of the, the millennium. I do see a place for this millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, it's referred to, at least in the vision, the version that I tend to embrace as historic premillennialism. Um, because it seems to be the, the understanding of the earliest Christian community, the earliest reading um, of the book of Revelation that kind of held sway in the first 300 years of uh, the church's history. In, in the last 150 years, 200 years or so, uh, there's become a new version of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism uh, that... Um, uh, it differs from historic premillennialism. That's probably a topic for another day. A lot of what's uh, presented in um, pop culture today is dispensational premillennialism, um, which um, there's, there's several differences, particularly relating to the, the role of Israel, particularly relating to the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, but also dispensational premillennialism uh, uh, invented this concept of a pre-tribulation rapture that would occur um, seven years before the return of Christ. So you end up in dispensational premillennialism with, with really two returns of Christ, and that's part of the difference between modern dispensational premillennialism and what I've tried to present as historic premillennialism. If you really get interested in this, just contact me and I can give you bibliographies or a bibliography that talks about the different ways of, of viewing human history. So that's enough of introduction. I hope that you uh, did listen to the uh, previous session where I did more introductory stuff. And what I want to do now is just go through chapter 20 of uh, Revelation and make some remarks as we go through the text. So here we go, chapter 20, verse 1. We've already seen the return of Christ. Verse 1, then I saw, this is John speaking, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, uh, the little Greek word there is abyss, and a great chain. Uh, we actually met this same angel in this um, bottomless pit, this abyss, in chapter 9 of Revelation when the demonic locusts were let loose on the earth. Um, but you see this angel coming down now, and you see what this angel does. It's just an unnamed angel is all it takes to do what occurs in verse 2. And this unnamed angel sees the dragon, and to make sure you know who's being spoken of here, the text goes on to say that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So you're told that the one that's seized here is the dragon, the ancient serpent, devil, Satan. It's really clear who this is, and he's bound for a thousand years. There's where the phrase thousand years occurs. It's the only time this uh, earthly reign of Messiah uh, before the final end is referred to as a thousand 
years. Uh, so I think it's important to acknowledge that. That, that phrase is only used here. Uh, again, I think it fits the chronology of Ezekiel 37 through 48 and 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28. And it fits a lot of other concepts that are scattered throughout the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Uh, I think a thousand years here, because we are encountering this in the book of Revelation, is a symbolic period. It doesn't specifically mean a thousand years as opposed to 999 or as opposed to 1001. I think a thousand years here, if you compare it to all the other um, terms or time limits that are given in the book of Revelation, uh, is clearly a long, significant period of time. Not three and a half days, three and a half weeks, but a thousand-year reign. So it's a significant period of history. This, this earthly reign of Messiah is uh, referenced in other places, um, particularly in some, um, some other non-canonical, non-biblical uh, literature of Jewish apocalypticism, early Christian writings. Uh, this this, this uh, kingdom of Messiah on earth is sometimes uh, mentioned as other as other um, time periods, uh, not just the 1,000-year reign. So again, that leads me to believe, and I think it's commonly accepted, this 1,000 years is a symbolic period of a long period of time. Uh, so Satan is bound for a long period of time. Uh, continue to see what happens here. Verse 3, uh, the same angel who has bound Satan for a 1,000 years has thrown him into the pit, the abyss, and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So he uh, is uh, captured by this angel, this unnamed angel. Uh, he's bound, he is shut up, and it is sealed uh, in the pit. So um, that, that is a pretty serious um, controlling of Satan, has a pretty serious imprisoning of Satan. Um, the amillennial view of the millennium says this is the binding of Satan that took place at the crucifixion of Christ, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And that's why this binding of Satan is a picture of, of uh, church history right now. And I understand what they're saying. I mean, we're making great progress. The, the world is hearing the gospel in remarkable ways. So in some ways, the, the devil is bound in this age. In some ways, the devil was bound at, at the cross. Um, and the, the devil cannot stop the spread of the gospel. But I think this binding here is, is even a more dramatic binding than we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the Gospels make it clear that the strong man was bound at the cross, uh, but also uh, the Petrine literature, 1 Peter, also makes it clear that the devil is roaming about like a roaring lion in church history at this point. Uh, so I think, I think the binding here in chapter 20 is a, is a more dramatic binding than we can attribute to Satan. Uh, during the church age, but he's bound for a thousand years, the period of time that Messiah, Jesus, will rule on the earth. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, uh, after that, he, the devil, must be released for a little while. 
So there's a binding of the devil at the beginning of this millennium, and then a releasing of the devil at the end of this millennium. Uh, we'll talk about that a little more and perhaps ask the question, why is he released after this um, messianic reign here on earth in just a few moments? But let's continue with the text. Look at verse 4. John says, Then I saw thrones, again, multiple thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, and I think this is a different group, uh, and the ESV translation seems to imply it's a different group. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So I believe that these people that are coming to life here are both the martyrs that we encountered under the altar in Revelation 6, but I also think it's more than one group here. I think it's, uh, I think it's all of those who uh, did not yield to the beast, all of those who kept loyal to Jesus Christ, not only during the end of uh, church history, but throughout church history. So I think what you see here, because this uh, is in accord with much other of the New Testament, you see all of the people of Jesus being resurrected here to rule and to reign with Christ. Uh, that's promised to us in several places in the New Testament. It was promised to us in other places in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 5, uh, verses 9 through 10. Jesus our Lord spoke about it in places such as Matthew 19, 28. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, when he says, will the, will the saints not judge or rule in the earth? Um, this concept is, is very much prevalent in a lot of other Jewish apocalyptic writings of the period before Jesus and after Jesus, this promise uh, that the children of light will rule and reign here in this earth. And that's what I think you're seeing here, the first resurrection, those in Christ ruling and reigning on earth during the millennium. Those who are in heaven, comes, they come with Christ to rule. And, and those uh, that are um, still uh, living at the time of the return of Christ rule and reign with Christ. So I think multiple groups are being presented here, uh, which is also... Uh, pretty much uh, explicit in verse 5, where it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Um, I know that there's been people throughout, there have been people throughout church history who have said this first resurrection referenced here is a spiritual resurrection of people when they come to new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, but then what you have to do, you have to, in the next verse, allow that resurrection to be a physical bodily resurrection. Uh, and I think that is not treating the text fairly. Uh, to see two different kinds of resurrections here this closely together. Whenever we come to Christ, that is a spiritual resurrection here in this world. That's the birth of eternal life in us. 
Um, that is a biblical New Testament concept. But I think here in both verses 4 and 5, it is a physical resurrection. There's a physical resurrection uh, of those who have died in Christ. They are brought with Christ um, to reign and rule on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be a second resurrection. Uh, that's why in verse 5 it says the rest of the dead did not come to life. And the word there is the word for resurrection, predominantly in the New Testament. It is used in a few places for uh, receiving new life, but it's usually physical resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The people of Christ being resurrected, the spirits being reunited with the body so that they could rule and reign with Christ in history. Uh, then verse 6, we have another beatitude, another benediction in the book of Revelation. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years years. So those who are in Christ will be raised at the beginning of the millennium to rule and reign with Christ. And you also see here in this text, in these verses, they will also be priests of God as they rule and reign with Christ for this millennial period, this messianic kingdom on earth. And then um, after that, there'll be a second resurrection of all those who are not in Christ. And then at that point was, is the final judgment and that will be the second death, the, the eternal spiritual death um, that occurs at the end when the final judgment comes uh, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Let's continue on in verse 7 and see the final defeat of Satan. Remember, Satan was bound at the beginning of this millennial reign. And uh, verse 7, it says he's released. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison, the abyss, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, Gog is the ruler of the kingdom of Magog. That's just a prototypical way of talking about enemies of the people of God. Uh, in Ezekiel's day, they really referred to a northern kingdom of some kind that would come against uh, the people of God there in Jerusalem. So that's how it's being presented here, that after Satan's released, as we're told here in verse 7, uh, he will try again to conquer uh, the will and the ways of Christ and the rule of Christ on, in, in the earth. And it says that he will, he will gather people to him from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, the enemies of God, and they will gather for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. So you, you notice here something really interesting with this reading of the text, that after the millennial reign where Christ is um, imprisoned, I mean not Christ, the devil is imprisoned during the millennial reign, the devil is released for one final, one final shot at uh, destroying the kingdom of Christ. Um, but of course, um, Christ then prevails completely. Uh, why let him be released? Why let there be another battle at the end of the messianic kingdom on earth? Uh, it's a good question. And um, probably there's some great mystery there. Uh, if you want to push me on a reflection on that question, I'll say this. I think this shows us the tenacity of evil. I think that shows us that the human heart 
even during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, the physical personal reign of Christ on earth from the holy city of Jerusalem where you see the lion leaning down with the lamb. I'm using language from Isaiah. When you, even in that perfect kingdom on earth, the human heart being what the human heart is before the final end is still can be prone to evil. So you see the tenacity of evil. You see the tenacity of, 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 of evil in the human heart. Um, it's not just an um, environmental situation with humans. It's not just that we need to be put in the right environment and educated in the right way, and then evil somehow is eradicated. Uh, it's a heart situation for humans. We know that. That's clear teaching in, I believe, both Testaments. Um, particularly the New Testament. So uh, I, I think maybe that is part of the reason uh, you see this being allowed by God. It's part of the plan after the Messianic kingdom, uh, the millennial reign of Christ, the devil is released. And then he tries to war again. Verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp or the city of the saints and the beloved city. I do think this millennial reign is centered in the, the uh, glorified Jerusalem. But it says here, again, no battle, but just simply fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. That's Gehenna, that's hell. Uh, where the beast and the false prophet were. They were already put there at the end of chapter 19. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is everlasting torment, eternal torment. Uh, hell was created, Gehenna. Hell was created as the final place of judgment for those who rebel against God. Um, and it appears here in this text to be an everlasting eternal torment, torture, um, tormented day and night forever and ever, as the text says. So at this point, history pretty much is wrapped up, and here's the final judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I, John, saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Again, this is the second resurrection. This is the resurrection of all the dead from human history. Uh, the first resurrection is the resurrection of those in Christ. Uh, the reuniting of spirits uh, that have died and gone to heaven with the bodies here on this earth. That's the resurrection of, of the faithful dead. This is the resurrection of all. Uh, the remainder at this point. Uh, all the dead, great and small, they're all standing before the throne. And it says, and books were open. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. These books, books of life, are referenced throughout um, the Bible. It begins all the way back in the Pentateuch. It's referenced in other places in the, uh, in the, in the book of Revelation. It's, it's, they're referenced in several places in apocalyptic literature outside the New Testament. I think one of these books is just a record of all that we do in life. And then there's the book of life. That's the other book. That's the names of those who have been written in the book of life because of their faith and their loyalty to Christ. Uh, we will be judged as, as to what we do with our life in, the, in just the general book that's open. Our life will be 
will, will be displayed before us. Uh, but then what will really determine our eternal destiny is if we're written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. If we're written in there as a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, what's written in the first book is, is important. You know, what we do with life determines our rewards in the world to come. Um, and then, but the book of life determines our entrance, our entrance into the eternal kingdom. So there are multiple books here, and this fits with what we see in other places in the New Testament. So they're judged. Verse 13, to make sure you understand this, a universal judgment. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades. Hades is just the place of the dead. Hades um, uh, in the New Testament era is, is seen as a, uh, not a good place, but it's, 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 it's different from where the redeemed go today. Uh, paradise, Abraham's bosom, I think, is that part of Hades reserved uh, for those who die in Christ. It's a place of bliss. Uh, but then there's the place where those who die outside of Christ... Uh, that's what was referred to here as death and Hades. Hades is Sheol, hell is Gehenna. Uh, so that it says here in verse 14, then death and Hades, uh, they were emptied. They're thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell, that's Gehenna, the final abode of the wicked. And that's why it's referred to here as this is the second death, the lake of fire. That's where you saw the devil uh, cast uh, earlier in chapter 20. Here you see all those who follow the devil will follow the devil into the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's how human history wraps up in chapters 21 and 22. Uh, we see the final new creation. We see the new heaven and the new earth, the final ultimate kingdom, the final ultimate bliss of the people who live and die in Christ. Uh, so thank you for spending this time with me. Um, chapters 21 and 22 are absolutely awesome, and I don't use that word frequently, uh, as we see the final... Uh, reward of those who live and die in Christ. So I uh, thank you for studying. I uh, thank you for your commitment to the Word and uh, look forward to join, joining you again soon. God bless you.